Hey, I'm Samuel Finlay, and this is my podcast. In this episode, I chat with Dan Churchill. Dan is a chef, author, and is the co-founder of Charlie Street. I speak to Dan about his career in food, moving to New York to open up an Australian-style cafe, writing recipes, living a healthy lifestyle, intermittent fasting, and much more. So, let's get to my conversation with Dan. So I'm chatting with Dan Churchill on the podcast today, chef, author, and co-founder of Charlie Street. Dan, thanks for joining me. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me, Sam. Appreciate it. How are you holding up? Obviously, COVID-19 has changed both of our lives quite a little bit. How's life in New York? <laughs> Dude, I've, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a lot different to what New York City usually is. But I don't know, if people watch you know, what I'm about in terms of uh, positivity in life. I, I, I look at, obviously this is not a very good time in general, but I, I always look at like what we can learn as individuals coming out of it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've learned to pour latte art. I've uh, learned to really accomplish handstand walking and um, I can, I'm now reading a lot more than ever before. I've also just had time to do things that I haven't been able to. So um, I'm actually really personally mentally sane uh, and whilst there's a lot of things that we can't do with like the restaurant for example there's a lot of digital content that i'm filming and and whatnot so you know you, you take essentially what i all about man is controlling the controllable and uh, i'm doing what i can just like you would be that's right how strict are the restrictions over there at the moment for you guys yeah dude it's it's interesting like everyone's talking about the hectic chaos of new york city and the extremes of what it is and it is it's uh it's pretty hectic when you look at the numbers they're quite alarming What's interesting is the most majority of those are in the Bronx, deep into Brooklyn and Queens. And, you know, notably where I'm around in uh, Manhattan is you're not really, you don't really grow up in those neighborhoods of Manhattan, like Soho and whatnot. They're more people who've come from out of town or, you know, uh, other countries and, and moved to New York City. Whereas the people who live in those suburbs of Queens and Bronx, they're like family orientated. So it's much more dense population. So, as a result, people where I live have uh, gone out of town. They've gone back to their homes in suburban um, America. So there's not many people around in lower Manhattan. And so it's very quiet. Um, and the restrictions, whilst they are extreme, they are less concerning where I am compared to where they are in the Bronx and whatnot. So uh, my restaurant's not allowed to open up just like everywhere else. We can do delivery. Um, we, can ha- we have to stay six feet away from each other. And... Yeah, I guess that's uh, you know social distancing at its finest. It's really uh, le- help us learn to adapt to what we can. How has that delivery trade been? Has it been busy? Uh, well, we actually interesting man. We if you look at a delivery model in a restaurant, um, you know view, it's you make the food, you take on all the costs of the goods, the wages, and then you use a third party delivery platform which will do the marketing, the advertising um and the delivery for you but as a result like eating to your margin so a lot of the time they're taking up to like sometimes 35 even 40 percent of your total um which is really not beneficial unless you're doing a high volume of meals so uh we actually made the decision not to do delivery but instead transition to something called charlie street meal plans so what we did was we work with rather than work with a delivery service um where individuals would go on an app that would have hundreds of restaurants and then they would pick a restaurant once a week or however often they were just selecting on this particular delivery platform uh, and that meal would get delivered to them. 
we would work on our foundations of our principles and core values of delivering hot, healthy quality meals regularly and routinely and in a habitual fashion, but also then take it to a whole new level, making it very specific. So, you know, rather than work with that, we work with specific clients where we do breakfast, lunch and dinners, lunch and dinners, snacks, uh, for a variety of different tiers as well. So that started out by me working with athletes from my role at Under Armour to then be extending to the general public who still want high performance based meals. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's kind of obviously forced us to really put a lot of focus and attention on that. So then uh, as of this week, we just launched our own um, Charlie street app. So people can now actually go on the app and we get the delivered, like instead of us going for the third party, it's all controlled by us, even the deliverer, driver so we actually use a third-party delivery app that will then deliver on the basis of our costs um so it makes it much more controlled for us um and then we contain the obviously not necessarily the the the, the data of the individual more or less we help build our community but better and it's really exciting i just want to go back to the beginning and sort of ask how did you first sort of get into cooking and and this uh lifestyle i guess Dude, like I'm a middle of three boys, so I just had to eat, right? Um, I played rugby. I live by the beach. I'm active on the northern beaches. So I think that the idea, we, I just love to eat, you know, like everyone does. And so <laughs> then that kind of got me intrigued as to control more about understanding what, how to make, how to help myself eat more. <laughs> um, and then as I like, you know, went through my university degree, I was more interested in understanding where food came from and how I can control that as well. So um, that really got me into food. And it wasn't until, you know, writing my, my books that I realized that in order to help people truly understand the capacity, which they can help their lives that I had to probably focus more of my attention to educating myself in the kitchen more so, you know, I spent time for multiple years just um, working in kitchens, uh, everywhere from, you know, washing dishes to um, doing, being the prep chef to line chef to sous chef to head chef to, every, yeah, right up to, you know, I guess, expert and all those kind of things. So it was um, a humbling experience and it's, uh, you know, it, you, taught, you learn a lot yourself, you really do. You self-published your own first cookbook, right? Yeah, man. Actually, I still published the first two. Um, and I'm in the midst of doing the, the next one as well here in New York City. It's the first one I'll do over here. But yeah, it's a, I, I had a really decent chat with a lot of different people. And the publishing world is a very interesting one. Um, one where you can look at it for different reasons. A lot of people go into it thinking it's going to make them a lot of money and, and that's great. Or the, like the alternative is to what's the purpose of the book. And, and ultimately, if, you, if you're in it for money with publishing, you're probably in it for the wrong reason. But um, it's ultimately going to give you a boost in profile to help share your message. And that's what Dude Food did. Like it really set me a bit of a foundation. And then that was supported by The Healthy Cook. Um, and then further to that, like I guess... I actually then signed on to a publication because they would help support me even further because self-publishing or it, this is, this is honestly, dude, it's like, this is how you write a book, right? And this day and age, I'm just gonna make it really simple for you. <laughs> you write some recipes, you shoot some photos, you put it together and then you send off to a printer and then you have a book. Um, the difference between main difference in controlling that versus um, publishing is you then have to sell them. Right. So, you, well, you still have to sell them even if you're the publisher, but you have to go to the uh, stores, you have to go from door to door, um, you know, people's homes and everything, especially around Christmas time was ideal. Um, you know, <laughs> that really helps. <laughs> and how did that process go? Because back then you obviously didn't have the name you have today. 
Dude, uh, I, I took advantage of my Northern Beaches roots. I, I used to run up at like, I used to do my PT sessions with boxes of books in the back of my car. Someone, this is, this is, uh, someone related to this, is, this, this has this for giving a parallel universe and in no way am I comparing myself to this person, but they said, this is kind of like the Nike story. You're selling books out of the back of your car. just <laughs> like, you know, he was selling the back out of the back of his, uh, his car. I'm just like, look, this is a completely different situation. But in the same way, a lot of people start the businesses from their own backyards, um, from their own garages. And that's just what I did. Like, you know, I didn't know anything better. I just went and did training sessions. I went to university. And then in between, I would go to bookstores and be like, hey, guys, so I'm a local North Beaches boy. I've got this book. And I just kind of sold it on the basis of what I expected people to pick it up on. So I said, look, this book's perfect for a birthday, Christmas, um, boyfriend's present, girlfriend's present, uh, you know, girlfriend's present to her boyfriend, grand- grandsons, all those kind of things. Because no one knew how to cook for kids, right? You know, like, like, boys don't know how to cook still. So yeah, that's kind of what I did. And you studied exercise science um, at university, correct? Yeah. So I did an undergraduate degree in exercise science. And then following that, I want to be more specific in the world of like, human physiology. So I went into my master's degree in exercise science and strength. You still fall back on that degree regularly. You know, you're often posting on Instagram workout routines and, you know, tips for being healthy and um, living a healthy lifestyle. I guess, how have you brought cooking and food and that exercise science background together? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, man. I, uh, since becoming the chef under armor, I realized that there was a definitely a unique selling proposition I had. More importantly to me, I realized there was an opportunity for me to be, have a point of difference and to blend nutrition and cooking or nutrition and food wasn't, you know, unique, but to be able to use uh, food and cooking as an application of applying well, being a practical application of all the things we keep talking about in human physiology, that's what I was excited about. So what I do is, I take all the science that we get from research papers and from all the really wise people we have in the world. And then I, I kind of funnel them into ways that food plays a role in that. So, I mean, the obvious ones are things like intermittent fasting, but then the, the not so obvious ones are the effect of sleep. Um, and that's where I get really excited because I look at the way that, you know, I don't want to go too much into the weeds, but the way that neurotransmitters are affected um, by simply the food that we eat, not just by the time of day that we eat them, or more importantly, by the time of the day that we eat them. So, you know, the now, there's now a lot of studies that suggest the type of food we have is just as important, if not um, less important, to be honest, compared to the time of day that we're actually eating those foods. Uh, and so I take that, I kind of take those uh, research papers and I look at them from a, an athlete. So dealing with the athletes that we deal with, but then also for the everyday individual, because ultimately cognitive performance is controlled by the mind and the cognitive performance is you know, done by the brain, but then the mind controls everything, right? Even your, the way that your, your body moves. So, and that applies to not just people trying to perform on the track or the, the football field. It's those people trying to perform, you know, in the workplace to better themselves, their family. And so that's where I've found that food is a huge opportunity to like, you know, talk about the, op, you know, the, the things that food does in helping optimize those processes, essentially, which is really exciting. I love it. So back when you were sort of studying and prior to publishing that first book, did you always envision with marrying the two together or was it just sort of something that evolved over time? You know, you're obviously on MasterChef as well. I'm sure that would have helped, but is that something that just evolved? Yeah, dude, definitely did, man. Like I, 
when I was doing my master's degree, I was doing it for the reason of wanting to become a strength and conditioning coach and someone who could help, help an athlete, you know, do things like uh, improve their, their power to weight ratio output by 5%, um, incre increase their vertical jump time, uh, jump height by a certain amount, which obviously then has significant um, implications on their strength and power output, et cetera. So like I was really finding ways that I could help uh, over here in the NFL. They look at ways they can improve their 40 yard dash time for the combine. I was looking at ways that I could help better a person that way. But as I did this more and more consistently, I loved it. But I always kind of was just brought back to food. And I think it was my love, my love for what food just does, man. Like it's, it is an exceptional thing. You look today in the, in the world we live at the moment and the one thing that uh, you see across a, a number of media sites and is noted all the time is, the, is how everyone is willing to provide financial aid to restaurants to provide food for those who are on the front lines. And those who are suffering from insufficient income are being provided food. And the happiness and joy that we all come to in that kind of aspect, aside from human physiology, that's what really excites me. So I guess if you break it down, I was so pumped to be helping people better themselves to then transition to help the everyday individual just live a happy life that I brought those two facets together. And that's, that's what I've always like now, now I've realized that's what I wanted to do. And that's sort of interesting. You mentioned that. Cause I think that kind of sort of ties into your way of uh, approaching food and your way of approaching recipes, I guess, cause I've found you, your food is very relatable. I feel like anyone can sort of cook your food and it, it's for everyone. You know, you offer you know, recipes for vegans, for people who want to be, you know, paleo, um, for, you know, you name it really. How, how do you approach the, the recipe making? Dude, I'm so glad you said it. Thanks so much, Sam. Like, yeah, that's, that's what I always wanted to be, man. I've always wanted to be where my food can be not to the point where it's like, it's too hard. It's uh, not me. It's not, um, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have the ingredients that I have the access to. I, I always wanted to be one of those things where it's like, I can cook no matter what. And I've always looked at recipes. And if I feel that I, I kind of look at it from my perspective, right? So when I'm cooking, I'm like, is this too much effort? Because if it's too much effort, and I think it's too much effort, there's absolutely no way someone else is going to do it, right? And I don't want cooking to be a strain. Yes, I do believe there's a mental barrier we all must overcome when it comes to food. And that is that food is difficult to cook. When it's simple, it isn't. And I'm not just saying that from the fact of my professional career, but it's more the fact that the barriers and the biggest ones, time and dishwashing. Let's be real. Like, let's be real people for a second. Dishwashing is a big one. Like, yeah, it is, man. Um, I've always think I should write a cookbook on how to wash dishes. <laughs> get clean as you cook, right? Dishes. Yeah, clean as you cook. Um, and so, yeah, man, like I, I, my, I think when you look long term at what you're trying to achieve, I want to achieve as many healthy cooks in the world and in order to do that i have to break down the barriers in order to break down the barriers i still have to make it as attainable to anyone as possible so all my recipes like as i look at you right as i'm talking to you right now i've just done a couple of recipes on one pan dinners right and that is just simply minimize washing simple cooking but you still get a little technique out of it that gives you that little like uh, adrenaline rush of happiness that you want because 
because that's what you get. Like, you know, when you sit down and have a meal that you cooked and you're like, oh my God, I crushed up the skin. This sounds amazing. I've never had a salmon like this before. And it's just like that realization. <laughs> it's like you can actually do something that you go out and pay 40 bucks for at a restaurant and it's super easy. So out of curiosity, what would be your favorite recipe that you've put together over the many years that you've oh, been doing this? That, <laughs> spag bowl straight up. Like I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a family spaghetti bolognese and it's, it's the combination of complete serendipity for my family and nostalgia. I love, um, you know, growing up in Australia, man, we're humble creatures and I am so thankful that we have tall poppy syndrome to have my brothers continually beat me down to help me be better in the kitchen. And the spaghetti bolognese was what really was the catalyst for it all, man. <laughs> so what does a day of eating for you sort of look like at the moment? Oh, dude. Uh, okay. So right now it's interesting because, so I'm operating the meal plans at Charlie Street, which means I'm doing the cooking. Um, so usually I'll get a gym session in the morning, but because of COVID, I'm reading before I get into work. And then, so I actually, I'm actually fasting at the moment just because I've realized as much when I work out in the morning, I feel ravenous afterwards. Um, cause I've got a somewhat of a unique uh, so I've got a resting heart rate of 30. <laughs> so like, very low. Changed, yeah, very low. It's changed a lot of things that go on metabolically in my system, but it means I personally need food whenever I work out. So if I don't work out in the morning, I'm taking advantage of this time to um, imminent fast. And uh, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying it. So I don't eat until about 11.30 at the moment. So is that like a 16 to 8 fast? Yeah, so the 16-hour fast, eight hours of eating. Um, and so the reason behind that is that studies significantly and consistently show that by having a window of like this, it, it primes your body for a number of things. So you are firstly, when you wake up in the morning, you have cortisol elevated at its highest. Uh, that is purely because it's there to get the body up and awake. So you release this stress hormone, which is a good thing because it does a couple of things. It uh, helps wake up the body um, and also breaks down tissue. Uh, that is available. Now, if you have no carbohydrates present, you have no insulin present in your body, which means it's using uh, fat to break down the tissue uh, as energy, right? Which is great because you're firstly um, uh, using that as an energy source. You're probably getting rid of unwanted fat that you don't want to be storing, but also it's a really efficient use of energy for your brain and other parameters in your, in your, uh, your life. Um, the counteract to this is if you go past fat and continue to break down down uh, protein, which is not something you really want to do. So you don't want to be in a starvation mode consistently or noting that you're, you know, in a massive calorie deficit. But the, the other plus to this is it's actually really, really good for what's called autophagy. So this is like, we always talk about so much about the body composition benefits of things like immunity fasting. I, I, I'm such a big believer in all the, that's like 2% of the benefits of these kind of things. Like if we're not talking about looking good, for a little bit. We're talking about looking good for the rest of our lives, right? So autophagy is a process that looks after your overall being. You have these, sorry, man, am I going into too much detail? No, no, I love it. Keep going. Okay. 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 So you've got, um, for those who don't know your body and therefore you have your cells inside your cells, you have a nucleus inside the nucleus. You have this thing called mitochondria and what's like your little energy power plants. They generate your energy. Um, and after a while they get old, and they need to be essentially refurbished or gotten rid of, but they don't get, they're not rid of, they're not uh, able to be, I guess, removed unless this process of autophagy is efficient. Now, in order to have that happen, you have to be an energy uh, deficit, which means, uh, you know, I guess a formation of um, 
intermittent fasting is fantastic at just during that process. So it helps rid the body of these cells. It also does the same with the brain in its, you know, I guess, respective correlation when you're talking about all these uh, defunct brain cells that have done their work and now they are just kind of hanging out in the brain. You want to get rid of them because then once that happens, you get to help increase the um, uptake of new generated or what's called, uh, it's called neurogenesis, essentially, yeah, new, creation of new cells, right? And so that process creates new cells, which means fresh, anything fresh is great, right? And the combination of that and a good sleep and you win. So ultimately, I'm intermittent fasting right now to create autophagy, to create new cells, get rid of the crap ones. Um, and also, uh, it's great for fat metabolism and looking after my insulin um, sensitivity which I don't really have a problem for, but for those who potentially would, it's great for those looking into um, uh, preventing using, uh, I guess, pills and drugs uh, for type 2 diabetes and, you know, looking at uh, more natural reasons why. So what do you usually break your fast with typically? Oh, dude, right now, um, I'm smashing oatmeal, to be honest. Uh, so when you're not fasting that insulin, if you're not having carbohydrates, as I said in the morning, your insulin is uh, not present. When the insulin is present, it unfortunately um, prevents fat oxidation. So therefore, if you have carbohydrates in the morning when you have the ability to break down fat, no fat will get broken down because insulin is present and that means it has to get the sugar out of the blood into the muscles. So, um, but once my fast is able to be broken after that, you know, 16 <laughs> hours, I'm smashing a good thing of oatmeal, house-made jam, just strawberry jam, house-made peanut butter, walnuts, a uh, tiny bit of maple syrup and um, I am, I'm ready to go. I, I feel it's pretty funny. When it happens, I feel like I've just had like spinach, like Popeye did. Cause I'm not that I'm lacking <laughs> energy, but I feel like my muscles just fill up because they're waiting for that. Those, uh, those sugars to hit. Are you still having black coffee as well? Yeah, man. So you can use, uh, on intermittent fasting, you can definitely have black coffee. You can even, some people actually add cream to their black coffee. I, uh, I don't, you can use, uh, MCT oil or even grass fed butter. But the reason behind uh, that is uh, having black coffee is actually increases the uptake of fat metabolism um, and other things like it helps increase the neural pathways in the brain for you to do stuff as well. So with that intermittent fasting that you're currently doing, are you sort of uh, skipping a meal or are you still sort of getting your, I guess your first meal, your, your lunch, I guess if you want to call that and your dinner within that eight hours of eating? No, absolutely not skipping a meal, dude. I <laughs> would not be able to do that to my body. Uh, no, so I, I eat 11.30. I probably eat again at like 1.32 and then I eat again at like probably four or five and then I eat again at seven, 7.30. Um, trying to eat two hours before, at minimum two hours before sleep time. In bed by like 9.45, reading until about 10.30, lights out. Um, let's go again. That's a little bit on your evening routine and you sort of mentioned it um, a little bit before, but what's like a typical, maybe before COVID, what's your typical uh, morning routine? Typical morning routine when I'd get up, um, I would, I would, yeah, simply I'd have, so I've got this thing called Athletic Greens. Have you heard of Athletic Greens? I have, yeah. Before? So yeah. it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great, it's a great green energy supplement, um, 75 whole food ingredients. So I have that first thing on an empty stomach. Then I have black coffee. Then I go smash the gym for about an hour and a half, um, half, half an hour of mobility hour worth of work and then come back, um, give the lady a little kiss and uh, get ready and get to work by probably around seven thirty and do a bit of reading, um, assess a few things. Cause I get there early because if I get there early, I've got no problem with, uh, you know, there's no, there's no responsibilities that uh, I have to have with other people on the team. I can just get my work done. And so I get in early by about nine 30, uh, I'll have questions come my way and then it's, uh, it's the day ahead. Essentially. You mentioned, um, exercise there. What's a, a typical workout looking like 
for you now? Right now, man, I've, uh, so this is just between us and all your listeners. So I've got a rooftop. Um, I'm, I'm, I live just, so in my apartment in Soho, we, we've got a roof right above me and I'm not allowed to go on it, but I do. And I've got these <laughs> awesome, like, I think cinder blocks are the right way of saying them. essentially these big cement, like this cement blocks and I'm like, they're my dumbbell rack. Um, so I've been currently doing a lot of calisthenic style workouts because obviously we're all limited with the amount of weight we're doing, which has been really cool because I've been able to increase my mobility. I've been able to work on things like, like, um, you know, archer push-ups, handstand push-ups. Like I'm now working on the ability. So I went from doing, working on my ability to do a handstand walk, to do a stationary handstand, to a handstand push-up, to shoulder taps. So like I'm now, it's actually so cool. When you break back, when I was, playing rugby all you want to do is lift weights right and that's because you thought it's gonna make you bigger faster stronger which is essentially what you're meant to be doing but now i'm like this is so cool next i want to challenge myself to do a backflip you know I'm, I'm having this time to like i'm always challenging myself to do things i'm you dude sam i'm about to break something to you i want to break the world record for the lowest resting heart rate <laughs> well you, you're not far off it with 30 at the moment no, yeah i'm really not so there's a guy on the tour de france who did 28 and then there was one at 26. And so I've done all this without any breathing control patterns. So I reached out to Under Armour. I'm like, let's do a series on this. So uh, I would love to do a series on like going, getting to sub, going sub 26. Watch this space. Amazing. <laughs> Watch this space. How good is that? So yeah, it's, uh, it's probably sitting right now, probably around 40, given the excitement you and I are having talking to each other. But um, <laughs> yeah, like... There's moments where I can't stand up. Uh, I, can't, I can't drive a car at nighttime. Not that I do in Manhattan, but when I'm back home I, I, at nighttime, if it's longer than 20, 25 minutes at night, I, I, it's not safe for me to drive, so I don't. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. I, I remember uh, hearing you on a, another podcast a little while ago talking about scheduling an hour into your day each day for like yeah. creative thinking. Do you still do that? Absolutely. Dan's thinking time, it's called. Maddie, thank you so much for allowing me to keep doing this. So <laughs> I have uh, Maddie, Maddie works with me and she schedules this in. So I have this uh, yeah, dance thinking hour. I turn off social, I turn, I turn off any alert that could come my way. I essentially put my phone on, do not disturb. Um, but even just in case, I turn everything else off. Um, pen and paper, my thoughts. And uh, sometimes it leads me to meditating for 15 minutes, which is pretty cool. Other times I, I just write down a bunch of stuff and I had to challenge myself to like not go to the email quickly to respond. It's, it's, it's a sense of an email. It's something weird. I actually have to hop back and be like, no, wait till, wait till your time's up. Um, and it can lead to the weirdest things. And then Maddie and the team will be getting these ridiculously outlandish ideas. Like, Oh, um, some of them get, go, go straight through to the keeper. Uh, others, um, yeah, others are actually put to the maybe box, which is pretty cool. So yeah, it's really helpful. I think more than anything, rather than the ideas you come up with, it helps you really flex that creative brain, um, which sometimes we forget to actually, uh, you know, exercise. And I, I love it. So I guess it's, it's almost like a mindfulness practice. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. One, it does help me benefit from, you know, help me come to some solutions that I've been struggling to do with. And it also allows me just to have my time, which is really important. And then another thing is, is it's definitely a mindfulness practice. It's, it's, you know, I had a guy named uh, wonderful, wonderful individuals named uh, Michael Gervais on my podcast last week. He'll come out soon. And he was talking about the art of mindfulness and mastering mindfulness is something that's 
you know, the obvious is definitely like the sitting on your, your, your bum and like putting the, the things, fingers on your thighs and doing the hum and like, but then there's so many other forms of mindfulness. It's like, explain to me, you could be doing mindfulness by just, and for me, it's like when I'm sauteing onions, right? I'm just like <laughs> in my moment, it's where your brain and your body are concentrating and are still on the same thing. And I find that so therapeutic. It's amazing. <laughs> so you wear like so many hats, you know, you've got Charlie Street, you're a chef, you're an author. How do you go juggling all of that? Oh man. Uh, look, I, I think um, I'll be honest in saying I'm not perfect. I really am not. And I, but I think what I have learned to do is what to say no to. And that's really important. Over the years, as many opportunities come your way, there's so many things that people are like, oh my God, you, you can't be doing this. But like in my head, I'm like, this has come as a result of me saying no to that. So like being the chef of Under Armour has come about me saying no to a lot of things that if they saw me doing, I wouldn't be that, that role. You know what I mean? So it's really important that um, you learn, you learn more about yourself by saying what, by, yeah, you learn more about yourself by what you say no to than what you say yes to. And I also have an unbelievable team, both at the restaurant and um, the one that looks after my personal uh, endeavors. So with my Epic Table production team, they just, you know, work really, really hard with each other, which is really cool. You know, going back a little bit, but how did the move to New York and Charlie Street sort of come about? Well, my books were doing pretty well in Australia that they got noticed overseas in the U S uh, this is a real short form, right? This, what I'm telling you right now happened over about, about a year and a half process. So they got noticed in the U S I then got an invitation to go to meet with publishers in the U S I went over, I signed a deal to do a book tour. I decided to do a book and on the back of that do a book tour on the back of the book tour. I got a TV deal uh, after doing some TV time as a nurse that, um, you know, this Australian dude could somewhat talk on television, which is pretty cool. Um, and that led me to having two very solid contracts allowing me to get the visa that I wanted to be over here. So I moved over. Um, first year was really tough. Absolutely tough. Starting again. Um, you know, I guess going from where I did in Australia, I wasn't anywhere. Like, you know, it wasn't anybody in Australia by any means. But like I started to build a bit of a profile as someone that is a fully in the space of food and nutrition and cooking. And as time and things grew, I took the opportunity to like, well, I could either continue living in Australia or I can go to the next level and go to um, the US and expand even further across a bigger, bigger, you know, population. And as I did that, I was like, yeah, whatever. Like, I was naive at the time, right? I'm super young. So I was like, whatever. So I did. Um, and it was challenging, man, because uh, you didn't have your same support network. Like, Little things. I don't know where to get toilet paper from. I know that sounds so weird, <laughs> especially right now when everyone's struggling with toilet paper. But like your, your standard comforts and habits, you have, you have changed. I don't have the beach around me. I don't have coffee around me. I don't have my family. Um, it's not hard for me to make friends. It's more of a case of you're starting your whole new brand, like just you in a 400 million population. And you can't expect to go from that to um, zero to whatever you are quickly. It's a, it's a growing arduous process. Um, but I just kind of stuck in and yeah, man. And I realized that as I continue to just be just grind and grind and grind, I, uh, I knew I needed to have a space to associate with my name rather than just be this person who was doing content and visual content and, 
led me to Charlie Street, which is a, a concept that I'm super excited by. We, we are a brand that wants to help educate people through our vision of what food should be. And that's helping them from where the food comes from, how it gets from that farm directly to us and, and that whole process to making it cool to, to be involved in those kind of things. And, you know, the idea is to scale this concept to the point of, uh, you know, we have a, like, the, I, I, this is the thing, dude, I want to grow Charlie street to have such a powerful voice that we have the ability to influence people in the right areas. Same as what I'm personally doing, you know? And so, um, you know, it's obviously tough right now with what we're going on, but my team is just resilient. I love it. And, uh, you know, that the first, we've been open for two years this July. Um, and that's open. So before that, you had the, the first the creation of the idea. It's this, dude, this is this in itself. It's like you have the idea creation comes up with, which continues to change even once you open. Then you've got the, the structure of the team to the financing, the finding of a store to more financing, to the build out of the store, to department of building problems, to, you know, department of cafe and outdoor seating problems, to uh, opening. Uh, and then you have... Uh, and man, this is this is another whole catfish. Like people in Australia have high wages, right? And yeah. so they're used to doing five times the jobs that one person does because they just you just can't afford to have so many people on the floor. In America, wages are less; they get paid in tips. But as a result, I had to learn. This is this is another thing. I couldn't just take what I knew and the work ethic that we grew up with in Australia, which is we are hard workers. Like I am so proud to be an Australian, how much we work. It is amazing. And pure example, we have different roles in our restaurant where you've got the person, for example, who's, uh, you know, um, doing the, the salad station. to who's doing the spread station to who's doing the uh, coffee station. If you're the, in, in, in your retrospect, dude, what would you do? Here, let me put this back on you, Sam. If you, if you if you were in the salad station and you noticed there was a person at the coffee machine and the coffee machine person, the barista, was under the pump and you were free, what would you do? Oh, I'm running over there and helping. I'm steaming milk. I'm pulling shots. Absolutely. What is what is an no, I don't want to say that, but like what do <laughs> some people do over here? They just stand still. <laughs> That's not my job. That's not my job. I'm what they do. To their credit, they do their job really well, right? So when I first came over, they owned their station. They owned, they owned station B, but they would not go to station A. You know, they were just like, no, I'm, I'm not getting paid for that one. I'm doing this one. So as much as you have to conform to the idea of what uh, a new culture is, you can also help create a culture. So like now, now interview process is a whole lot different from when we first started. And, and that is a learning. This is why I love it. I'm learning so much. I'm like, it is tough to break a habit, particularly one that is of a country's culture. But I want to help educate people to see that they can better themselves and learn more. I'm not saying they have to do it all the time. But we want people who want to, no matter what, get the job done for the team. They're a team player. Um, you know, there's, there's a quarterback in a team. There's a full forward in a team. There's, you know, I guess a halfback in rugby. They're all got their own roles. Doesn't mean they don't all tackle. You know what I mean? And that's, that's really important for people to understand. And that's a big thing of Charlie Street. As we grow, as we create more initiatives, we want that team environment to be more of the, 
And I'm, I'll proudly say it the Australian way. And, and then I want to continue to build Australian brands over here in Australia, make them proud. And, and yeah, man, that's what Charlie Street's all about, creating healthy, colourful bowls and epic coffee, but doing it at a scale that really will impact the world and show Australians, um, or show, show the world what Australia's all about. And speaking of epic coffee, you guys are using Proud Mary, which is originally from Australia. Uh, how did that relationship with, I listened to your podcast with Nolan, how did that relationship come apart about? Dude, have you been to, have you been to Proud Mary in Melbourne? I have, yes. Yeah. So I lived in Melbourne for a year and I worked um, in coffee down there. I worked at Seven Seeds and oh, okay. I lived in Fitzroy. So I was, <laughs> I was right near Proud Mary. So I used to go there and to Arnie Pegg's quite a lot. Awesome, man. Yeah, so Nolan and the team, like, if there was like a, a friend in coffee that you just like, like if, okay, so Pete, we go check out his podcast and all, and he's, he is oh, it was a great. geek in coffee. Did you like it? I really did. Yeah. I, I loved it. And have you met Nolan before? Like, so could you hear his voice and see him and be like, I, I've been to uh, cupping with him. So I've never met him one-on-one, yeah. but I've, uh, I've been to cuppings where he's run them. So he's, those listening on from Sans Pod, like he's like a super geeky geek. No, he's not super geeky. He's just geeked out on coffee and he's passionate and he's got a beard and he looks like he's a barista that is from Melbourne. Um, and he's now in America. And so like people probably look at him as a bit weird, but he's like super successful, uh, but also stubborn in the best of ways. So like he thinks that coffee should be looked at as wine. And it, like, just like wine, which it should be te- technically four times as much because it has four times as many flavor profiles compared to wine. And we look at wine with this phenomenal wine list about different ages and different um, farmers or vineyards and what they're meant to do in their perspective and, you know, what they're meant to invoke. Uh, and so he has the same philosophy on coffee, which is awesome. So we got introduced to him. Uh, how did we get introduced to him? So we, we actually, it was really, dude, we had like a carping battle down it was like a throwdown between a couple of companies and nolan just won us over man he was just like he was like the dude he's just uh someone that i just want to talk coffee with all the time um like i read a lot now uh particularly on human physiology but every now and then i'm like hey nolan send me this and you just send me this geekiest thing about coffee and i read it, i'm like that's so cool <laughs> so he's the kind of person that i trust his processes um the coffee is you know question but here's, here's my theory on it right melbourne is known as the capital of coffee in australia australia is the capital coffee as we believe in the world as we australians know <laughs> so if that's the case and if proud mary is notably one of the best coffees in melbourne in new york city at charlie street we hold one of the best coffees in the world that's how we like to estimate it and how have people um, responded to Proud Mary opening up there? Because Proud Mary, obviously, back home, it's got a great name here. And I know they're, you know, in Portland, they're doing things over there. The coffee is slightly different, you know, roasted, maybe a little bit lighter. Um, it's got a bit of a different profile. How have the people responded to that? You know what? I'll be honest in saying that it's been a challenge. Um, not because of once they taste it. They love it when they taste it. It's It's convincing people that you do pay x amount of dollars for a cup of coffee you've got your third wave coffee element over here which is starting to well it's already started like two or three years ago it really started but there's still that element where people like would get a dollar coffee from whatever it is you know not starbucks like starbucks up until about six months ago i didn't realize actually seen as a like a royalty to americans 
Uh-huh. So like Dunkin' Donuts is actually the biggest importer of beans in America, not Starbucks. So Starbucks is seen as a, as a lavish treat for <laughs> general Americans, which is cool. Um, but uh, when it comes to, you know, coming to America and having coffee, it's like people say, why is like, oh, that's a great, I don't want that, it's a bit expensive, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. The reason why it costs a little bit more is because you're getting a higher quality. In, here's a really good case study. My friend has a company called Super Coffee. He's, uh, his name is Jimmy DeSico. He's also on the podcast. Legend of, he's like my bro of a brother. So he's like a former running back for a Div 1 um, college team. He's like, he's got three brothers or two brothers. He's, he's got, he's, yeah, he's obviously three brothers like I am. And he's just such a bro. Like we chest bump. He's, he's a legend. He's very successful as well. Anyway, on the podcast, he talks about when he and his team go to middle America to sell their coffee, coffee um, protein drink. The difference between middle America buyers in these big superstores like Walmart versus Whole Foods in the East and the West Coast is that the question that the buyers in the South and middle America ask is, what, how much money are you going to put into advertising? And once that number is told by the boys, they then say, you know what? We don't want any advertising. Just take that money off the price per unit of coffee. Why? Because middle America is actually more interested in the cost as opposed to what it is. So when you look on the shelves in middle America, most people go to the shelves, won't look at what they're actually looking at in terms of the product, look at the, the cost, like whatever's cheapest or relatively cheap, we'll pick that. Whereas on the East and West coast, they're going to be like, what's in it? And so that's why more money's put towards advertising specifically because they're like, okay, well, we'll be educated on it. And that's kind of what we're looking at. We're actually okay in Australia, in, in New York City currently because people are okay. Once being educated, they want to learn more, which is actually really cool. I guess um, responsibility on my behalf is to help educate people on coffee and food and things like that. And they want to know, it's like, why, why is this farm got an amazing soil? It's going to generate the best nutrient dense ingredients. It's going to provide for me to live my day at my fullest, you know? And that, that's the kind of thing. The same position we have with that coffee. It's when someone gets a cup of coffee from Charlie street, it's not just, here's, here's your, here's your, you know, flat white. It's, Hey guys, so hey Sam, today flat white we're using Humbler. Uh, it's a blend of uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. It's a chocolatey uh, flavor profile. Best thing about it is, as it cools, you'll be getting more rounded, yet more of a true rounded bean flavor. And what I mean by that, it becomes fudgier as it cools. If you like it, if you're like a dark chocolate lover, I recommend having it as is, long black, black star. Um, but if you want to go and have a bit more dairy milk as you go, the more milk you add, the more of a Cadbury style dairy milk it will become. If you like me, I'm a big 90% bitter lint person. So I love a long black. But if you like a flat white and then obviously, you know, even more so like a latte, uh, you'll start to see the trend in creaminess uh, help dictate and, and arrive at your point of happiness. So, that's the kind of thing we want people to experience every single individual at Charlie Street. Love it. Feels like I'm in Melbourne again. <laughs> there you go, bro. There you go. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the podcast, uh, Epic Table Podcast yeah, that you've had out for a while now, which I love. Congratulations on it. It's, um, it's great. Thanks, man. Thank uh, you. How, did, how did that concept come about? Because it's, it's pretty unique, really. It's you know, this interview and it's a cook-along at the same time. How have you found it? Man, it's, I mean, it's, it's like... Essentially what I did, I just get to put a microphone on someone. I, I, I have some of the best conversations with the most unique individuals. And I'm not talking people with profile. I'm talking just individuals who have done some pretty cool stuff. So um, the podcast itself, I started because I was having these conversations with people and I learned so much and I wanted the rest of the world to hear. So 
it started out being a podcast where I would interview everyone from CEOs, experts, uh, celebrities, actresses, actors, um, and help people understand the journey. Uh, and as a result as well, make it more relatable by making food. And when you include food, it makes it sound as if like you're all in the same kitchen together having a cool environment. And then at the same time, people learn a really cool dish um, out of it, which is really cool. So cool takeaway. And as it's evolved, you, you obviously look at your analytics. And the ones that have started really well, man, are all these things on human physiology that I, uh, I touched upon throughout um, you know, the start of this podcast. Um, I just had like, my last four or five podcasts that we've taped I've all been around things of heart rate variability improvement, understanding recovery, what is true sleep, what are the types of sleep, um, using repetitive devices such as Theraguns to improve your um, central nervous system ability, and and what is the sympathetic, excuse me, what's the sympathetic versus uh, parasympathetic nervous system, like all these cool things. And the reason why I'm, I'm I'm interested in this is because firstly I'm interested in it, but it's really cool to hear my audience are further and further involved in understanding what's going on with their human body. Um, and so, yeah, it's evolved into that. And then next to that, I, I create concepts of food that will then supplement what we're talking about. So yeah, it's, it's been awesome, man. So um, it's been a year. I've loved it. So, you know, how long has your been around for dude? Uh, only like a week. <laughs> so good for you, dude. I, I sort of, I've been meaning to start one for such a long time and I've finally got it going. So you're, you'll be the second episode, second guest. Not, who's the so, first? Uh, Travis Roach. He's a PT from Wollongong. Yeah. Um, I know Travis. Health coach. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah so, yeah. um, yeah. Thanks for being the second guest. I, I yeah. appreciate of course. It. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I've been chatting for a while now, but just wanted to know your future plans. Obviously COVID changing the, the outlook for many people but what have you got on the horizon and maybe after uh, COVID-19 yeah man great question I look my vision has never changed uh how I get there slightly varies or the the, the time which you do so may vary Charlie Street still you know always wants to do what I said it's, you know grow to be this company that invokes uh education to build and educate healthy communities through food that's what we're all about uh personally I'm, I'm looking at ways that I continue to be a thought leader in the space and provide resources to people to help better themselves, not just help them live their true potential, you know, and if it's through the means of the podcast, the more shows that I do content through my social media, um, whatever it is, that's what I'm looking to do. So you'll see more projects with Under Armour, um, a lot of stuff going on in the world of food network as well. Um, and yeah, just keep on the space with the social, with, with the podcast, obviously, and, and what, uh, what the video content in the studio kitchen we're up to. So it's fun times. Cool. And j- just quickly, what exactly is your role with Under Armour? I probably should have touched on this earlier. You yeah, know, you're right, man. Good to know. So like my role as the chef is uh, I'm a spokesperson for food. Um, I'm also the person who helps support particular individuals on their journey through, um, you know, focused events such as world championships or Olympics. Um, and then I'm also someone who's, a, you know, I help um at key events so like i was meant to go to the olympics i was meant to be going to tokyo and uh taking people through a high performance unit there essentially um you know helping athletes be well recovered well prepared and uh, rested for what uh what they're about to invoke on themselves just to sort of wrap up i guess is i wonder if there's you know you're someone who reads a lot and i'm sure you listen to a lot of uh, podcasts as well is there maybe a a book you've recently read or a podcast you've listened to that you could recommend to the listeners mate um 
Oof, it's like when I go shopping. Other than your podcast, of course, because everyone should be checking that out. <laughs> uh, thanks, man. No, I'm trying to think about... So the books I've read recently, let's have a think. I've had um, Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday, Why We Sleep, Genius Life, Songs for the Blue Ocean is a great one too. What else have I read? I've read Dan Barber's Third Plate. Oh, man. Um, you know what? I reckon one book that is going to be super left field that I read was um, Leonardo da Vinci's autobi- uh, Leonardo da Vinci's biography by Isaac Watson. It, it is unbelievable learning that man, understanding that man and his thought processes. He was far ahead of his time and you can learn so much from somebody like that. I, uh, yeah, he was a genius and we know him for what he did with like the Mona Lisa, but he did so much more. He was an architect. He was a producer for like Broadway style shows in, uh, in, in Rome, um, or in Italy and, and whatnot. And yeah, he, he was also a vegan and he was gay. So he was, uh, very much ahead of his like time. He was a really cool dude. Uh, I just love how his crazy thoughts went on. Um, I'm also reading right now, uh, reading Winston Churchill's biography too. So like these people, these really interesting leaders of the time. Yeah. Just really get me. So I recommend those. They help you understand more about you as you read them. Thanks for the recommendation. I'm definitely gonna have to check them out. Yeah, man. Just to finish out, where can people find you? You're obviously on social media, YouTube. Yeah. Yourself. So if you want healthy, <laughs> dude, if you want healthy recipe ideas, you can obviously just go to danchurchill.com. Uh, you can find all access to the podcast and everything there, or you can just hit me up on uh, dan underscore churchill uh, for Instagram. Uh, you'll see all forms of uh, ridiculous, tasty options and maybe me doing a, a handstand push up or two there as well. I <laughs> love it. Well, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, stay safe and all that type of stuff. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate it, brother. Be well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to listen to more episodes like this one, be sure to subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.